Hey, I'm Justin Anderson, lead pastor at Icon Church. Thanks for joining us for our series through Romans that we're calling Straight No Chaser. It is a look at the first seven chapters of the book of Romans. If you want more information, go to iconchurch.org. Hey, it's good to be with you, and I am excited to start this new series in Romans. Uh, over the next 13 weeks, we are going to look at the first seven chapters of the book of Romans. So I'd encourage you to read ahead, stay a week or two ahead of us, uh, so that you can kind of dwell in the passage. There's a ton here, and I'm not going to be able to talk about all of it every week. So I encourage you to do some study on your own. We are calling this series Straight No Chaser which is first and foremost an ode to the great Thelonious Monk song, which was later covered by Miles Davis. That's jazz. Look it up. Uh, and I don't know what he's referring to with that phrase, but I know what I'm referring to, and that's this. Paul's message is delivered straight. No chaser, right? Like that is Paul's way of writing in this book that is uh, really transformed a lot of people. Romans has had more impact kind of on the history of the church and our church's theology than any other single book in the Bible. In fact, the, the list of people, church fathers, who have been uh, really transformed by the book of Romans is long and illustrious, starting with St. Augustine. St. Augustine was saved by kind of randomly reading Romans chapter 13. The entire Protestant Reformation was born out of Luther and Calvin and others reading the book of Romans and kind of rediscovering the gospel of grace. And then later, men like John Wesley and John Stott, both British theologians, were massively shaped by the book of Romans. And then one name that does not belong in that list whatsoever is me. I was shaped by this book to a great degree, especially uh, in college, reading Romans 8, 9, and 10, studying it in my theology classes, was really the first time that the scriptures came alive in a way that challenged me both intellectually and theologically and then personally. And so I love this book and I have been waiting for an opportunity uh, to teach it to you. In fact, Martin Luther says this about the book of Romans. He says, this epistle is really the chief part of the New Testament and the very purest gospel and is worthy not only that every Christian should know it word for word by heart, there's your challenge, but occupy himself with it every day as the daily bread of the soul. It can never be read or pondered too much, and the more it is dealt with, the more precious it becomes and the better it tastes. Now, here's what I want to say about this book. Oftentimes, Romans is engaged um, as a, a kind of a theological treatise, and it is that. Like, you see the broadest range of Paul's theology here in the book of Romans, but it was, as every book is, um, written to a people in a particular context for a particular reason. So when we read Romans starting in chapter 1 and going through Romans 16, oftentimes we can kind of get lost in the first uh, really 10 chapters and, and really read Romans as if it were Paul's attempt to kind of synthesize or write a systematic theology of some kind. And that is uh, really not the case. Okay. The church in Rome was dealing with some very specific issues, and they are issues that churches are dealing with today. Namely, 
racial and ethnic mixing and the challenges that come with an eth uh, a multiracial, multi-ethnic church. Okay, In the first century, the majority of the early Christians were Jews converted to Christianity. Later on, primarily through the ministry of Paul, who was himself called to be kind of the apostle to the Gentiles, the not Jews, um, the Gentiles started getting saved and started to, you know, join these churches with Jewish Christians. And there was racial tension immediately around theology, around customs, around worship, around how they would uh, interact with one another. There was people getting special treatment and people getting left behind. This was happening all over in the early church, but Rome in particular was dealing with this issue. So uh, Romans chapter 12 through 16, get into the practicalities of Paul dealing with this issue. In fact, some commentators have suggested that we should read Romans backwards so that we can see the context for which it was written and then begin, get, get to the beginning and go, okay, here's why Paul begins with the gospel. Right? So Paul is working to kind of relieve these racial tensions and to promote this vision for a multi-ethnic church. And he does so by beginning with the gospel. Now, kind of the, the hinge passage um, in this book is Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. It's probably uh, well known to many of you. It says this, I appeal to you, therefore, really like building this 11 chapters worth of theology. And then he goes, now, because of all that, I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Then he says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So hear what Paul's saying. He goes, I, I built 11 chapters worth of a theological framework, a, a lens through which you might see the world and specifically through which you might see um, the people that you're at church with. This, these, these people that are different from you in, in substantive ways, culturally speaking, that you might see the situation through gospel lens, not through a worldly lens. He goes, I don't want your mind to be conformed to this world, to think in worldly categories. I want you to think in gospel categories. Okay? And so in order to solve this issue of multi-ethnic church, Paul begins with the gospel. And that's what we'll kind of lay a foundation for in these first seven chapters. But I, I don't want us in the real depth and riches of theology in these first seven chapters to lose sight of the overarching reason Paul is writing. Like this isn't just kind of disconnected ideas. This is lived theology as all good theology should be, but this is lived in a particular context of trying to kind of heal racial and ethnic challenges that were facing the early church. Now, the way he does this is classic Paul. He starts by laying theological foundations and moves kind of logically and biblically, theologically through this idea to be able to then land at practical application. He wants them to understand the why 
and not just the what, right? So Paul could have just started in Romans chapter 12 and gone, listen, stop thinking like the world, think like the gospel, now here's what you do. But he doesn't. He wants to lay this theological foundation so that they can live out of the gospel. But he gives us the medicine straight. There is no punch pulling. There is no softening of blows. He wants us to feel it. And, and we are going to feel it in these subsequent weeks as Paul goes straight at kind of the nature of mankind and the nature of God and how different they are and how it's the nature of man that has caused so many of these problems that they face. So in this first section, verses 1 through 17, Paul lays out three big categories that he's going to then unpack for the next seven chapters. The categories are these. One, what is the gospel? Two, who is the gospel for? And then three, what the gospel does. So what the gospel is, who the gospel is for, and then what the gospel does. So let's jump right in. Romans chapter 1, verse 1 through 6. It says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle. We're going to come back to those two things um, over and over throughout this series because Paul's primary identity is one as servant, bond servant, which is someone who owes somebody else a great debt and then is working on their behalf in order to pay off that debt. And then he says an apostle, which is a, a sent one. This literally just means sent person, right? In the Greek, apostolos. So he's a servant, a doulos, and a sent one, apostolos. So say it with me, doulos and apostolos. Great job. Okay, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Gospel simply means good news. And he's saying, I have been called to be an apostle, separated, set apart for this one purpose, to be an apostle for the gospel of God. Here's what that gospel is. It says, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. First thing, Paul's message of good news is not new. It is the fulfillment of hundreds of years of Israel's history, all of the prophets, all of the law, beginning back in Genesis 3, the first time we hear the gospel preached, this is a continuation, in fact, a fulfillment of Israel's story. Okay, this is going to be a huge theme as Paul is trying to tie together these different strands of the story of Israel and now the ingrafting or the inclusion of non-Jews into God's church. So first, it is the story of Israel being consummated. Second, it says it is uh, prophets of the Holy Spirit concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh. Again, Israel. So we're talking about Jesus, the Son of God, who was, according to the flesh, descended from David. This is what the prophets have been talking about. This is what Israel's been looking for, a Messiah in the line of David. Okay? And was declared to be the Son of God in power. So we've got Paul's first kind of, uh, kind of racial reconciliation statement here. In fact, Three times, very explicitly, just in these first 17 verses, Paul is going to tell us why he's writing. Like, he's going to draw attention to these racial tensions. But he also does so in more 
implicit ways or in more subtle ways, and this is the first. So he begins by saying that this gospel of God is the accumulation or the consummation of Israel's story, and that it is about Jesus, the Son of God, who was one uh, uh, in, the, uh, in the flesh, the son of David, the descendant of David. So that brings in all the Israelites, but then also uses very Jew, or non-Jewish language, language, saying he was declared to be the Son of God in power. Right? This is non. This is Gentile language. So he's bringing in this. He was the son of David, but he was also the Son of God, declared to be so uh, by the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Right. So we've got Jesus, the consummation of Israel's story, uh, appearing as a descendant of David and declared to be the son of God in his resurrection from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And, and, and I would say if there was, if, if you had only four words to declare the gospel, that's the gospel. Jesus Christ, our Lord. We'll come back to that just in a moment. But he goes on, through whom, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith, to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. So yet another mention of inclusion of all kind of racial uh, backgrounds and ethnic or eth ethnicities that Paul is tying this all together here. Now, let's zoom out for a moment, okay? Paul says that the gospel of God is that, in a nutshell, Jesus Christ is Lord, or Jesus Christ our Lord, more specifically. Okay. And here, here's why that can be a really helpful way to understand the gospel. One is that each one of those words has individually meaning. So Jesus means God will save. The Yeshua, the, the name of Jesus means God saves or God will save. Christ, Jesus Christ, Christ simply means anointed one. Now, it was packed with meaning about Messiah and all this stuff from a Jewish perspective, but it very simply means anointed one or chosen one. So God will save through his anointed one, our Lord, Kyrios, right? Like so that the, the gospel is not only are we saved by Jesus, but that now he is our Lord. Like he is our king. He is the one who leads us and, and rules over all of his creation. Okay, this is good news. Because the great prophet of our time, Bob Dylan, once said that everybody serves somebody and man, is that ever true? And so if we are going to serve somebody, if we are going to have a Lord and King that we will obey and follow, I, for one, would love for it to be a Lord and King who is also my savior. Okay. So the good news of the gospel is that Jesus Christ is our Lord that God will save through this anointed one who is then our king. Now, the gospel is as much a diagnosis of our problem as it is a solution to our problem, right? Because inherent in the statement, Jesus Christ, our Lord, that, that God is going to save and that then God is going to be our Lord, that Christ is going to be our Lord implies 
One, that we need saving and that we need leading. That we need a Savior and that we need a Lord. In fact, I would argue that Paul is saying that this is our biggest need. That our greatest need in life is not, not for things or security or safety or whatever, or identity, none of that. It is one, to be saved and two, to be led. And again, remember, let's always kind of reframe this in the context of why Paul's writing. He is reaching out to this new multi-ethnic church and seeing the division and the problems and going, listen, first and foremost, you have to be reminded you need a Savior and you need a Lord. And that that is the foundation upon which that we can build a multi-ethnic church. Second, who the gospel is for. Verse 7. He says, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow, by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I want you to know, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you, as well as among the rest of the Gentiles." Catch this, verse 14, I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Now, he says two things about himself. One, that he is obligated, and then two, that he is eager, right? So Paul is communicating to this church, like, I, I feel this burden, this sense of need. I feel this obligation to share the gospel with you, and I am eager to do so. So first thing in verse 14, he says, I'm under obligation both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, right? So if you see your little footnote, that just means like Gentiles who are not Greeks. So basically most of us, I love that. I like to think of myself as a barbarian, okay? So Paul goes, I am obligated to all of you to share the gospel with you. Why? Because Paul wants us to understand that all people need the gospel. There is no one that doesn't need it, and there is no one that doesn't deserve it. That Paul goes, this gospel that Jesus Christ is Lord is for each and every one of us. Why? Because everyone is trying to deal with the reality of life. Everyone. We're all trying to make sense of what's happening around us. And maybe never more than the last couple of weeks. As, as we've tried to see the events of the world around us and, and, and feel the pain that they have brought to so many, including ourselves, and to try to make sense of the why. Like, why is this happening? And, and why do I feel so outraged? Why do I struggle with this? Why does this make me angry? Why? Do, why? What, what is this? What, how do I even have categories for what I see around me? 
And Paul goes, listen, the first thing you have to understand is that the gospel is for everyone. We all need this framework of understanding, this way to understand that I need to be saved and I need to be led, that I cannot do this on my own. Second, he says he's eager to preach the gospel, but that's confusing because he has led us to believe right before this that the people to whom he's writing are Christians. So here's the reality. The gospel is for all people all the time. We never get past it. We never get to a place where we don't need it anymore. Why? Because I never want to admit I need saving. I never want to admit that I, I can't rule myself. I, I, I want to and I do every single day grasp for control of to be my own Lord. And I reject any insinuation that I might have sin that needs saving. And in fact, I would say for myself, at least, that these last two weeks have really exposed both of these ideas in me, right? What some might call white fragility, I simply call, I don't want to admit my sin. What some might call white supremacy, I simply call, I want to be in control and shape reality to my will. That these are realities that we all deal with. This is why Paul says, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome, even though you are Christians, because every morning we wake up in denial about our own sin, and we wake up trying to shape and mold reality to fit what I want and feel like I need. So the gospel that Jesus Christ is Lord is something we need to continually preach to ourselves and have preached to us. Because again, the, the insinuation or the implication of Jesus Christ as Lord is that you need to be saved by God. You cannot save yourself. And it just, in fact, you need to be saved. Like you are the kind of person who is so fundamentally broken and in need that you need to be saved, that you are culpable for sin and that you cannot get yourself out of it. And you know that, that Jesus has to save. And then you need a Lord to submit to, to follow, to help kind of frame reality for you and say, these things are good and these things are bad. Pursue this, reject that. So we preach the gospel to ourselves as Christians and ought to over and over and over because we never don't need to be reminded of that. So in a sense, if Jesus Christ is Lord, then I don't care what they think. I don't care what you think. I don't care what I think. I follow Jesus. Jesus Christ is Lord. Okay, lastly, what the gospel does. Verse 16, Paul says, for, because I want to, I want, I'm eager to preach to you, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. I'm eager to preach it because I'm not ashamed of it because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. 
to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Again, a third time. He's going, listen, it's not just the Jews. It's not just the Greeks. You can't, if you're a Jew, can't go, yeah, those Greeks really need the gospel, but we're in, we're in Moses, we're in Abraham, we got the law, we don't really need it the same way they need it. Paul goes, no, you need it first. And so do the Gentiles need it. There is nobody who doesn't need it. He goes, because the gospel and the gospel alone is the power of God to save. The only reason Paul or anyone else would be ashamed of the gospel is if it doesn't work is if it's just a meaningless, trite saying, a, 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 a thing we kind of follow by default, a, a, a hollow culture that we have built, a hallmark card to make us feel better about ourselves and our situation, some kind of faint hope that we think someday this will all be better. If the gospel is not the power of God unto salvation, then it is to be ashamed of, but it is not. Because the power of God to save is there in the gospel. It does work. It does save. It does lead. It does transform. And again, I, I love this, and I wish I had time to build this out, but Paul says that he's not ashamed of the gospel for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. But that's the, that's the hinge. It's not what you do. It's not your background. It's not how successful you are. It's nothing. None of that matters in God's economy. All that matters is belief. All that matters is the kind of belief then that moves to action. He says in verse 17, for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. Now, this is a phrase that, that Bible translators have struggled to, to translate for a number of different ways. Every translation you see says it just a little bit different. I actually think the footnote on this is the clearest way. So if you look in the footnote in the ESV, it says, or beginning and ending in faith. He goes, listen, the righteousness of God is revealed beginning and ending in faith. All that matters is faith. All that matters is that you see God and depend upon him for who you are. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now, I love this. In this one little sentence, Paul says two things at the same time. One, he describes the way in which we might experience life, be made alive, as he says in Ephesians 2, that the power that makes us alive and the power by which we live is faith. So he says, the righteous shall live by faith. The footnote on that says, the one who by faith is righteous shall live. I, I love it. That captures the other sense of it, that to the degree we can put our faith in Christ, then he will make us alive so that then we can walk in faith and continue to live. If you go back up to verse 6, Paul says that the kind of the so what of the gospel is that we would um, receive grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith. That we're saying, I believe that Jesus Christ is Lord, which means I believe that when Jesus Christ, our Lord says, this is good and worthy of your time, this is evil and will kill you, I will believe him and I will walk out my faith with him. The, the best and simplest illustration I can give is, is of a chair. 
Okay. If you ever go to somebody's house and they pull out a chair for you and maybe it looks kind of rickety and you're not sure if it's going to hold you up and you were to say, actually, could you sit in that chair first? And the person goes, no, 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 I, no, I don't, I don't want to do that, but you should, and it'll be fine. It'll totally hold you up. And you're like, yeah, but maybe you should prove that to me and sit in it first. And they go, nope, you do, you go first. Let me just tell you from uncle Justin, don't sit in that chair. Okay. It's going to break. If, if a person's statement of belief does not match their action, they don't actually believe it. It's not actually real. I remember um, my wife is from this little town in Northern California called Gilroy. And Gilroy is the garlic capital of the world. It's, it's very impressive. Um, but they have an annual uh, garlic festival that we go to. And, and the first time I ever went, they had, they give out uh, garlic ice cream. And the first clue should have been that it was free, right? Like they're giving garlic ice cream away. But I remember my wife and her friends saying like, oh no, you got to try it. It's great. It's great. It just tastes like vanilla with a little hint of, of garlic. I'm like, okay. And I notice as I'm taking the bite, nobody else is doing that, but I think it's fine. And then I eat it. And what they described as vanilla with a hint of garlic is more like vanilla with a hint of hell, right? Like that, that was probably a better way to describe it. It was awful. And I noticed that we happened to be standing right next to a garbage can and nobody else was eating. They knew they were hypocrites. They were leading me astray. Why, why did I follow her into marriage? That everything else is great. Here's the thing. When there is a disconnect between what we say and what we do, then what we do actually says more about what we believe than what we say. So Paul goes, listen, by faith, we believe that Jesus Christ is our savior, that God saves through the anointed one, Jesus. But by faith, we walk as followers of our Lord. Faith in Jesus is the currency of the gospel. And, and some would accuse that of being exclusive, right? Like, why do you have to believe in Jesus? Why is Jesus the only way uh, to, to experience this kind of life transformation, right? And that's, that's, that's an accusation against Christianity. Now, uh, over and against that, the kind of secular gospel preaches that either there is nothing beyond this tangible reality, which means that there is no objective meaning, there's no transcendence, there's no real value kind of inherent in a thing. So uh, because of that, we can just kind of eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die, which one leads to nihilism, which is kind of means nothing matters. And, and two, nobody lives this way. So it's just hypocrisy, right? I mean, I have real questions for many of the people who are, uh, you know, kind of activated right now as protesters and rioters who would also at the same time say there is no objective morality, there is no transcendent meaning to go, okay, well then what are we mad about? here exactly like how do you how do you when you start to move down the layers to get to some essential things and there's nothing there then what how, on what grounds are you kind of forming these opinions for me i say jesus christ is lord therefore i say we are creating the image of god therefore but what what is the thing what is the what is the bottom what is the foundation philosophically theologically that allows you to say Therefore, now where there is uh, a, a vision of afterlife, that gospel is something like be good and you're in, which, which sounds great and very inclusive, but where does that leave 
the addicts, the mistake makers, the racists, the failures, the murderers, the lustful, the jealous, the controlling, the rash, the sexually promiscuous, and the can't get out of their own ways and just can't seem to get things right. They're out. They're excluded because they can't be good. So we either move the goalposts to such a degree that there is no such thing as not good, which makes everything meaningless, or we find that in fact that secular gospel is actually pretty exclusive. Tim Keller says it this way. So he says, so the apparently inclusive approach is really quite exclusive. It says the good people can find God and the bad people do not. But what about us moral failures? We are excluded. The gospel says the people who know they aren't good can find God and the people who think they are good do not. Both approaches are exclusive, let's be honest, but the gospels is the more inclusive exclusivity. It says joyfully, it doesn't matter who you are or what you've done. It doesn't matter if you've been at the gates of hell. You can be welcomed and embraced fully and instantly through Christ. We all have to reckon with the decisions we've made and those we continue to make. The ways we have failed, excluded, hurt, and wronged people. The invitation of the gospel is to come and be saved by the Savior King. Give your life to the one who gave his life for you. Take on your identity as son or daughter. Take on the mission of the obedience of faith and be saved. This is the call of gospel. This is what Paul says, I feel burdened, I feel obligated, and I feel eager to share with you because it is the power of God unto salvation. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for the simplicity of this gospel message, that you are the anointed one that will save and who will rule. And man, there, there is not a king I would rather have than the king who is willing to die to include his people. And that's you. So I, I, I willingly, eagerly, Lay my life at your feet to say, I am yours. Save me. Lead me. Let me be a member of your kingdom. Be my king. May my will be your will. May your will be done in my life. And send me. Send me the way you sent Paul. On, on a particular mission to accomplish good for your kingdom. God, we love you and we praise you. In Christ's name, amen. This teaching was recorded as part of our current sermon series at Icon Church. During our weekly gatherings, we move from the teaching into a time of response to reflect on and respond to the work of the Spirit. While we recognize it's hard to capture that in a podcast, we'd still encourage you to take a moment Consider what the Spirit might be saying to you in response to what you heard. For more resources and details about how to join us on Sundays, visit iconchurch.org. As we say each week, Christ is all and we are His.